Third Culture Therapy, a podcast that looks at the unique ways our social identity and cultural heritage impact our mental and emotional well-being. I'm Leila Magrabi, writer, journalist, and host of this show. In this series, I'll be exploring how our multiple, sometimes conflicting identities affect how we feel about ourselves and the world around us. Through interviews with people from various backgrounds, I'll be delving into the vastly different journeys taken in the pursuit of inner wellness and find out what aspects of their culture have had a positive and negative impact on their mental health. Welcome to the show, dear listeners. On this episode, I'm speaking with a very close friend of mine who I first met many years ago in Bahrain when we were both out there working. He's a wonderful person who has experienced his fair share of traumatic events and losses over the last few years. We talk about confronting grief and the wonders of therapy. And he'll also be talking to me about how being a gay Arab man living in the Middle East has impacted his inner well-being. So who is this guest? Well, let me introduce him to you. Jihad is a Lebanese-British multimedia producer specialized in digital archive research for cultural institutions across the Middle East. Born in Sierra Leone, Jihad was raised in Freetown until the age of 10 before the family relocated to Manchester. After graduating from university in England, Jihad moved to Lebanon and later spent a few years building up a stellar career across countries in the Gulf before moving back to Lebanon. Yet after a brief gayful return to his homeland, Jihad's entire world soon began to turn upside down. Within the space of a year, he lost his mother to cancer, was thrust into an exuberantly hopeful but ultimately crushed revolution in Lebanon, witnessed the country's steady economic collapse, his life savings disappear, and then survived the largest man-made non-nuclear explosion in history. And all while the pandemic was wreaking havoc on the world. Thank you for joining me, Jihad, on this podcast. I really appreciate you uh, being here today. You've had a fairly rough time of things in the last few years. How do you feel when you hear that list of, I suppose, tragedies, one might call them? A CV of tragedies. A CV of tragedies. I don't know if strange way, oh, first of all, thank you for having me. Strangely, or oddly enough, it kind of consoles to know that a lot of people have added a lot to their CV of tragedies in the last couple of years. I don't think it's unique to me. At least this is how I kind of feel from my inner circle and much of my extended circle from the multiple places that I'm from. I kind of feel that a lot of people have been through a lot over the last three years. There's some bad juju going around, Leila. You know, we can look at it with a very negative lens, and, and it is, undoubtedly. But um, there's something to be said about how much this upheaval is making us look at life and ourselves in a particular way and perhaps address certain things that we haven't before. And I wonder if you experienced that yourself. Um, you've been through a lot and it would have undoubtedly forced a reckoning of sorts for you. How has your mental and emotional well-being been over the last few years? So uh, I think the one word that would kind of encapsulate my mental well-being over the last couple of years and the experience I've been through is turbulent. You refer to many people 
having experienced a lot of upheaval and turbulent times, and that in some ways that brings you a little bit of solace, that you're not alone or you haven't endured these experiences alone. But there's a flip side perhaps to that. You know, you're in a country in Lebanon where rates of post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, depression are increasing year on year, and mental health problems are certainly very high. Suicide rates have been increasing quite substantially year on year since about 2011, which would coincide with the beginning of the Syrian war next door to Lebanon. And of course, as many of us know, Lebanon hosted a huge number of Syrian refugees, up to 1.5 million, many of whom are living in abject poverty. And that's had a knock-on effect on the country at large, the economy, the society, social fabric. And so we've seen along with that correlation with mental health troubles. Coupled with that, you have the economic situation that has also added strain on people, which is normal throughout the world that would do that. But there's also that additional layer in Lebanon where it's impacting the supply of certain medications and the supply of medical attention, being able to see doctors. So all of this is is a huge, you know, we're talking about a really big pressure pot of difficulty and emotions. How does that impact you as an individual when you're dealing with your own things and your own struggles to be in that sort of an environment? First of all, thank you for the very comprehensive list <laughs> or description of the cesspool that I'm existing in so far. <laughs> I was feeling really traumatized just listening to the list of <laughs> tragedies that this country has gone through and that I've kind of witnessed throughout. But it's a very good question. And actually, strangely enough, it's actually helped me to kind of uh, be in Lebanon and exist in a place or in a situation that feels more turbulent and difficult to make sense of than what I have been through personally, you know, within my inner circle without having to deal with what the country is going through. So again, I kind of found some more solace being here than being elsewhere because it felt that every time I looked outside my window or looked beyond my own reality, I saw a a situation that was more difficult or equally difficult or equally confusing to the one that I was going through. And in that way, again, I guess it feels like you're less, for me, it felt like I was less isolated being within this context. Somehow it was a bit like group therapy on a national level, right? So, you know, I mean, if you went out and spoke about trauma, people could identify with that because it was either, you know, loss of someone because of, you know, lack of medicine or healthcare or inability to access funds in the bank. So I'm not saying it was enjoyable to be here, but for me, it gave me an inner, what was it, inner peace, but it just felt good to be on troubled grounds because internally I was troubled. Somehow, if you're vibrating in a different frequency to the context you find yourself in, that frequency you're vibrating at, if it's negative, can be amplified even more because you look around you and you see that you're very disconnected from the reality around you. That's a really interesting way to look at it, that you were, I mean, it makes sense to a certain degree when you spoke about energy and vibrating and you sort of do want to, generally speaking, we kind of find ourselves attracted to those who are operating on a similar frequency. It's like, you know, happy people want to 
be around happy people or, and, you know, a bit like the, the saying misery loves company. Mm-hmm. And it sounds mm-hmm. like, you know, that's a little bit what you're describing and perhaps also that sense of not feeling so alone, which I think I can definitely understand what you mean by that when you're feeling so down and you, but you are in a, surrounded by people who are maybe a lot more buoyant and happy and, you know, rightfully so. But if you're not in that state, then it it can be so jarring and lonely. So it is interesting that that's, you know, whether you consciously or otherwise chose that, that's where you ended up. But to ask actually that question specifically, you know, why did you choose to return to Lebanon when you did? So my mother passed away in uh, early October 2019. So it wasn't a decision to kind of place myself here. I was spending most of my time in the UK prior to that. I mean, mostly my partner lived there. My mother was getting her uh, treatment in the UK, and that's where she passed, ultimately. So, you know, I was brought here to bury my mother, uh, along with the rest of my family, and to be with loved ones in that period. That coincided with the attempt at a revolution that happened, which coincided with the financial collapse, which had a knock-on effect on my situation because my savings were placed in Lebanon, my family's savings were placed in Lebanon. So I had to deal with trying to mitigate the consequences of the financial collapse and the banks shutting down, or at least the informal capital controls being placed on our funds and trying to see how best to mitigate the financial impact on myself and on my family, which led me to being here for a while. But uh, then kind of rounded up because then obviously COVID kicked in, right? So I spent a couple of months here and then I went back to the UK to be with my partner and then COVID kicked in. So when the first lockdown kicked in in the UK and I was there and I got stuck for six months or you know, we couldn't, none of us could travel for around uh, six months or so, it was initially a very beautiful period. I mean, maybe the first couple of days. And I think you were in London as well during the first lockdown. All of a sudden, all of a sudden the sunshine came out and skies were blue and... Birds were chirping and, you know, it all seemed very idyllic and it was kind of pleasant that the world had come to a stop. But little did I know that there were lots of, you know, demons that were about to surface, uh, you know, within a week or 10 days of the novelty wearing off of lockdown. So that period was very difficult because I think I had been on overdrive. His mum had suffered from uh, cancer and, you know, multiple treatments, including surgeries, etc., And I suppose when you are at the kind of forefront of a battle for someone that you love so much, you have a very big shield up um, and you're not really dealing with everything that you're accumulating on a daily basis. So it's really only kind of in a matter of, in a situation of silence, of um, reflection, that a lot of that can surface. And that's when it can become really overwhelming. That it was, you know, a couple of years of, Um, And my mother meant a lot to me. And then, you know, immediately after her passing, there was the financial crisis and dealing with all that. And at the same time, there was, you know, hope of a revolution or a change of political system. What I'm trying to say is that there was so much noise and activity and movement mentally and physically for me and emotionally just so much dynamism around me for three or four years prior to COVID kicking in, that when it did kick in, it was the complete polar opposite of that experience, going from so much going on 
very little going on. And when that novelty wore off, that's when a lot of very dark, ugly demons came out. Sounds like you perhaps didn't have that much time to really grieve after your mother died and after having nursed her for many years through her illness and then losing her. Well, precisely. uh, I think you hit the nail on the head in that there was so much happening just after her passing. And I don't know if you're familiar, I'm sure you are familiar with, you know, Arabic mourning periods, no matter what religion you are in this part of the world. I think we share it across all faiths. It's so intensive. It's so communal. You know, it's a week of mourning. You have the burial and then it's a week of mourning and it's almost every single day and your house is open and family surrounds you and friends and community at large is around you. So it's all very surreal. Normally they tell you when that ends, I hear this so often within Arabic society, is that after the usbu'ah, the seven days of mourning are over and you're starting to let to be left a bit more to your own, a little bit more time to yourself, is that when the real mourning process starts. You know, in my situation, that didn't happen because immediately after that ended, the revolution or the street protest started, which I joined immediately. And then, as I said, the financial collapse happened and I was busy with that at the same time as, you know, uh, joining the protest on almost a daily basis. So my morning was my morning period was completely put on hold. Yes, until COVID kicked in, until I was forced to sit with myself. How did it manifest? How did you feel at that point when you were faced with the silence and you couldn't go anywhere and you couldn't be throw you know throw yourself into something else, mm. um, whether purposely or subconsciously, as as a form of you know delayed grief? It's difficult to articulate it, but completely and totally debilitating and probably debilitating isn't even a powerful enough description of it. It felt lifeless. I felt lifeless and it felt painful. I don't think words can perfectly describe, well, I mean, I, I'm unable to articulate perfectly what it felt like. It felt timeless and not in the good way. <laughs> and it felt endless and it felt impossible to see any other reality that could manifest after having fallen that deep into depression. And for me, I think one of the things I struggled with the most at the time was trauma and visual trauma. I experienced my trauma very visually. Unfortunately, and I'm not going to go into too much uh, detail, but my mom's illness was quite visual. And being along with my family, you know, a primary carer and seeing a lot of what she went through, it was actually, I wouldn't say just visual, it was sensory. It was sounds, it was visual, it was these these flashbacks were very, very painful and they were very shocking. Um, that's how I, I was stuck in that place for a very long time. What did you do at the time to try and exit that state of being? In that period of lockdown, I don't think I had any tools to exit that state of being. I felt trapped. 
genuinely felt trapped, actually. And I, I wouldn't say necessarily because of COVID. And as I said, yes, COVID reduced a lot of the stimuli or the lockdowns reduced a lot of the stimuli that we'd normally be exposed to that may distract us from that. But I genuinely felt that it was infinite and I didn't have any tools to escape that. And what I did reach out for on a daily basis almost were substances and mostly alcohol. And that was just to numb. But you know, it's a temp it's not even a fix, but it's a temporary relief that comes with major consequences afterwards and perpetuates, you know, an even darker and uglier cycle of what you're going through because so I didn't have tools. I had friends, luckily. I had um, a partner who was very supportive. A cousin and one of my closest friends was also in the UK at the time and got stuck in the UK and ended up staying with us. So, you know, I had love around and I think that probably kept me from maybe harming myself in other ways um, or taking more drastic measures, um, knowing that I had these people and these kind eyes uh, that were around me all the time. But yeah, I was kind of stuck in that phase for six months um, up until travel restrictions eased and and I came to Lebanon. And when you came to Lebanon, did things did, did things ease up? You make it sound like they're connected. Are they? I don't think I dealt with anything at this point when I came to Lebanon. I think I went into full avoidance mode as I had been in prior to leaving Lebanon and being stuck in, you know, the relative isolation of lockdown in the UK. So I think I went back into just hyperactive, let's do a million things. And then within 10 days of arriving in Lebanon, the Beirut port blast happened. And I was in Beirut, actually it was the day I arrived to Beirut from being outside of Beirut during that period. And then that gave me in itself purpose for another month and a half and a Mm. sense of community um, and a sense of (laughs) being part of a greater trauma probably than what I had gone through from my mom's illness and the financial collapse and, you know, a country in collapse. It was a city that had literally been blown up. And having lived through that and seeing and being part of this incredible, incredible national communal drive, because unfortunately our mafia that pretend to be a state were nowhere to be seen at the time. And all hands were on deck from people, mostly young people. And that was so heartening. And I think, again, in that period, I bizarrely felt the best at that time prior to taking active conscious steps to dealing with my trauma and my mental Mm. disease at the time. It was the best I'd felt in that month because, again, I felt like I had a sense of purpose. And strangely enough, I was existing and sharing traumas with a whole country, not just a small community. It was... I think a month and a half after the blast, there was some time in 4th of August, yeah, a month and a half, maybe even almost two months after the blast. It was when civil society could do much more at that point, at least in terms of immediate emergency relief. And I remember walking down the main street of Jemaize or one of the main streets of Jemaize, the area that was affected, one of the areas that was affected the worst by the blast, 
Guru Street, and it had quieted down. There was no more the kind of crunching of glass and um, as you walked on the street, because that stayed there for a good month and a half until it was all cleared up by civilians. And it was just a moment of silence again. And that was the first time I broke down after the blast and realized what we had lived through and what had happened and what had become of Beirut um, in that period. And I think it was after that, actually, that, you know, when things calmed down, people started going back to their own realities or picking up their own pieces and not having access to that intense group community that I started to fall apart again. Wow, that's so intense, everything that you describe, but and there, there's such duality in it. There's this horrific experience of essentially man-made um, crime against the entire city, entire against the entire country. This explosion, this blast that happened was entirely avoidable and came about as a result of state negligence. More than 200 people died. More than 300,000 people's lives were affected. Businesses, homes destroyed. Like as you said, an entire city blown apart. And that and all of the trauma and suffering that comes with that is quite quite apparent. But then simultaneously, you're talking about this community coming together, this camaraderie, this help, and this sense of purpose that it gave as well. And it strikes me as kind of interesting that this seems to be a little bit of a theme. Maybe that's the theme everywhere, but definitely in your case and being in Beirut during a time of so so much upheaval. You know, you have this attempted political revolt, revolution, Thoda, whatever you want to call it, which you were involved with, as you said, and brought a sense of meaning and community together, but then also brought with it a lot of pain and precipitated or accelerated an economic collapse. You have the blast and similarly what I just described. How do you look on that, on this country of yours, bringing you so much, I suppose, pain or having experienced so much pain, but also this other side to it, which is the community that you describe? I think being from this part of the world, and this is an experience that is, I think, universal to all of us, is that it does come with so much intensity, good and bad. And that's why sometimes we find it difficult to exist happily or merrily in countries or places where things are just almost feel like they're permanently okay and things are neutral you know our part of the world brings with it even society is so incredibly supportive it reminded me when you were talking about rightly summarizing what i was talking about you know during the blast and my experience of trauma that community coming together that i can also apply in a kind of funny that when you said it it reminded me it's it's a continuation or i picked up where i left off from exactly a year earlier when my mum was in hospital for three months and we were going through this very traumatic experience of losing her in this very painful, ugly way. At the same time, this incredible community in London and globally, actually, the people flying in to be with us. There's always so much good that our communities have taught us and provide us. So would you say this community coming together, this closeness is something that you, as a positive aspect of your culture or your Lebanese culture? 
that helps you get through difficult times, that helps you maintain a certain good emotional, mental state? Absolutely. I think, I, I, well, I mean, I think it's a double-edged sword, right? Because I think when you are in an active state of crisis, i.e. actively losing someone, actively suffering from political upheaval, financial upheaval, actively suffering from an illness, etc., I think Lebanese or Arabic or Levantine communities are incredible in that they band around you really like a hive of bees and you start to operate as one entity, you know, and you need that, you know, it's everything from the distraction to the kindness of everyone to offer you, you know, food on a daily basis and invite you over to theirs to have a nice lunch with, you know, closest and dearest there, um, to, you know, picking you up and, you know, all the, all the, all the very gentle, loving, compassionate services that they offer you, you know, uh, you know, this is not unique to just the Middle Eastern part of the world, but many other parts of the world. And I think this is incredible when you're in an active state of crisis. I think the other side, uh, you know, if this, <laughs> I think where the sharp, the sharper end of the, <laughs> the, the blade is, um, and maybe is not where, it's so helpful is when you're actually in an inactive state of crisis. And that could be um, a period where you need time for self-reflection, a period where you need a little bit of distance from uh, your community because you need to question and work through certain things on your own or at least with targeted support. And then the continuation of that communal obligation that we have and that communal proximity that we exist in, this is when sometimes it can actually be, it can hinder recovery or it can hinder work on your mental well-being um, or emotional well-being. That's interesting. So it's like the same thing can be both, depending on the context, the great thing in helping your mental health, but also can equally in a different context be not so great. It can be life-saving or debilitating. Absolutely. I've started to have to kind of take active and small steps to back away a little bit without being very conscious that I don't want to offend anyone because they are the reason that I actually survived. You know, or maybe our whole family survived such a traumatic period. But when it becomes as a fixed norm that you will be part of that community nonstop with all its duties, um, with all the, the, the you know, with, with that sense of duty that you, that's when it can become a bit disabling. And it also comes mm. with that sense of guilt in our part of the world. And, you know, our society and our community, our societies are generally so kind of like our tentacles stretch so far. It's not like this immediate nuclear <laughs> family with like five people. It's like you and your 75 <laughs> uncles and aunts and all their offspring and then the friends. And, you know, you're talking about a small, it's like a small nation, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> it sounds like a bit of this duality and tension between the communal and the individual. The communal has a lot of purpose and brings a lot into our lives, particularly, as you said, in parts of crisis, but not only. But as you say, there's also this other side where this other element where we, we are individuals, we are spending ultimately all of our individual time with ourselves. And, and we need to understand as well how we can navigate and manage that. And sometimes I wonder, is there a little bit of 
deflection that's happening when we get together all en masse, mm. um, where we are as a community sometimes shirking the individual responsibility that we have to ourselves mm. to overcome. And I mean, you know, not, not not saying everyone needs to be dealing with stuff alone, but there is also, there is stuff that you can only deal with mm. alone. And I don't know sometimes how much work is, I mean, it's a generalization, but how much work is necessarily done in that, in, in our part of of the world. Mm. I think here in, in the UK, you do have, obviously there is a, there is community and family, but generally in the West, there's a lot more emphasis on the individual and in, in individualism and kind of personal responsibility. And so, you know, I'm not sure if it's a cultural thing, maybe it's just a bit of where, you know, historical progress of society as opposed to something inherently cultural. Mm. When I look, I see these two elements in within me and I just think about it and wh- what does that mean? And, and you know, I kind of try and marry the two because the work that one has to do on themselves is so personal. And sometimes there's someone else you want to chat to or brainstorm it with, but more often than not, it's, it's you and maybe a, a therapist. What sort of work Ultimately, you've spoken yourself about your journey and the journey that you're on now. What is that journey and where did it start? Did it start from where we left previously at the end of the um, gymnasium when you were standing? Yeah. Absolutely, it did. And I just wanted to say that somehow we being from multiple cultures or being made up of multiple cultures are quite lucky if we're able to marry these two things together that we were dealing with a second ago, which is dealing maybe a more Western-centric way or yeah, in the West, maybe it's about dealing with things individually. And in our part of the world, it's about dealing with it communally. And we're lucky to be, a, for me, I feel lucky to be able to marry these two things and sometimes having that clarity, okay, if this work is individual work and this work is communal and both are available and both are natural things for us to kind of operate in. So, you know, I think, I think this, what people might see as a clash or, um, you know, what people might see as two uh, cultures that are difficult to juggle. I think when you do get the right balance and you start to see the right, you start to see the positive and the negative in each, it becomes quite a privilege to have access, you know, to this duality that we exist in culturally. So for me, kind of my recovery journey started from where we left off when I was walking down the streets of Jamaica and um, it was silent for the first time in two months after the explosion um, the blast and i had my breakdown and i think it was then when i went back to my cocoon and people went back to their lives um is when i started to fall back into the unbearable inability to exist and uh, that i was feeling during uh, the lockdown when i was spent in the uk the first lockdown 
And I think I allowed myself to kind of fester in that for two to three weeks until I couldn't any longer. And I realized I needed access. And I, you know, I, I realized I needed professional help at that point. So I started to do my research um, into therapists by talking to friends. And interestingly enough, I was almost hell-bent on having a therapist that was of a similar extraction, cultural extraction to mine, i.e., you know, the Middle Eastern, preferably from the Levant, even better if Lebanese, but that had also studied, lived, had, you know, part of his identity that also was formed elsewhere. Because I wouldn't have to explain those nuances to them for either part of my identity or the pieces that make up the puzzle that is me. So yeah, and and luckily um, I did some research and after speaking to, I think the first and second and third therapist was the one that was right for me. That's so great. That's really great that you found someone fairly easily that kind of matched what you were looking for. And I think for those listening, I hope they take some encouragement from that because I think what you're saying would resonate with a lot of people this idea that they want to have a therapist who matches or who can understand, at least relate culturally. And that's not, I I must insist, not always Mm. necessary. Mm. But if you do, and if that feels important and ultimately it's so individual and it has to come down to how you feel, that, that it is possible and it is out there. How did your experience with your therapist help you on your journey? It was uh, almost immediate, which really surprised me. And really, I was in awe of therapy within, I think, three or four sessions. I had done therapy prior to that, briefly, for a couple of months uh, when mum was ill. And that was with a therapist in London who did not have an Eastern background. And um, I'm just going to refer back to the previous point i mean the reason it felt very important for me to have someone with a middle eastern background was because a lot of what i was a lot of what i'd gone through with my previous therapist was having to explain a lot of what i was struggling with which was you know levels of a sense of duty levels of obligations etc etc things that you know um my therapist in london was like well just sod it you know think about yourself you know and it was just well how do you explain that and by sodding it and just thinking about myself that means i'm literally ostracizing and putting myself out of my own community you know it doesn't work like that for us it's actually about doing it a lot more diplomatically you know, or finding the right lie or excuse, you know, (laughs) to not hurt them, etc. So back to your question, therapy had an almost immediate positive effect for me. And that was really very surprising. It was within probably the third or fourth session, and that was probably in a two-week period, that the PTSD that I was going through, and I think I explained and described earlier that um, the most challenging part of the depression or uh, mental emotional disease that I went through was the traumatic sensory overload. I was having uh, flashbacks. This was really debilitating because they would just crop up at 
end point. You know, I could be in the shower and I'd start screaming and pulling my hair because it was too painful. I could be in a social setting and someone would just say a word and trigger something, or I'd see, you know, a jest or anything. And, you know, maybe on the outside, it wouldn't look like I was going through much, but on the inside, I was being tortured, you know, in the depths of hell. It's a very physical, it was a very physical experience beyond it being spiritually and soulfully crushing. It was also physically exhausting because it was electrifying in the worst of ways. It was electric pain. So what surprised me is my therapist has a kind of um, it's an integrative approach. So he pulls on a lot of different mm-hmm. um, branches of uh, therapy. And I guess it was cognitive behavioral therapy in the first couple of weeks, which I'd never practiced myself. And within the first four sessions, my flashbacks ceased to happen. Wow. And almost completely. And when they did, they were a lot less electrifying they were a lot Mm. easier to handle and i just saw how therapy could be this incredible tool i was in awe that it was literally the same as someone saying okay you've got a uh, loose uh, frame hanging on the wall here's a screwdriver screw in the screw properly you know like tighten that goddamn screw right you know here's a tool use it and for me it just my mind exploded and that's when i started having immense faith in what therapy can do that's incredible i'm so glad that you experienced such immediate relief and i love the analogy of the sort of loose screw and all you need is kind of like the screwdriver or the missing screw if and just to put it in, it's it's actually sometimes really that basic. I think often there can be a lot of fears around therapy and what it's going to reveal and what it's going to dig up and don't want to go there. And, and you know, there may be that. That's, mm. I'm not going to deny mm. that, that there is an element of, of digging and uncovering sometimes. And it's not always pleasant. But sometimes it really is actually as basic as like you just need to fine tune something a little bit where you've got a little bit of sort of an error in programming that needs adjusting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you need to just go back and we need to rewrite the code mm-hmm. in the proper language so that you can have a better existence, a better day-to-day existence, particularly in experiences like yours where you are in a much more acute pain, as you said, manifesting in the sensory way. After you were able to get that sort of immediate relief what are some of the other tools or perhaps lessons or realizations that you, you gained from your therapeutic experience that have stayed with you and that have helped you find your way out of this dis-ease that you described and to a bit more of a balanced inner well-being? I think the ultimate thing about therapy that it allows you is that space between your immediate kind of visceral emotional reaction and your thoughts having that little bit of more expansive space take a little bit of space away from it and be able to kind of look at it and try and not to get too overwhelmed you know by the cycles of 
emotions and thoughts that we are made of, it has allowed me to again sit and maybe deconstruct that a little bit better. The overwhelmness is there, but rather than being overwhelmed with your approach on how to approach that or how to untangle that, you're not overwhelmed anymore. You can actually start looking at it and being like, okay, well, what are their triggers? Or is it environmental? Is it the people around me? Or is it the place I am in? Or is it, you know, is it a type of behavior? Is it a relationship? Is it whatever? You know, you, you can start to compartmentalize things and then almost a process of elimination placing yourself or removing these pieces to see what is working to make you feel a little bit better and to start to work yourself out of that. Another tool, I mean, it's not a, you know, I, I guess it's a bit of a cliche, but having a therapist repeated to you so many times is that movement, connection between whatever we consist of, our consciousness and our bodies is so important waking up and lounging in bed fine occasionally and feeling sorry for yourself i guess every now and again is okay and probably a good place to be in because it allows you to wallow and release you know certain energies that you know need to be released in that way but when you become stuck in that movement is so important you know and that could be exercise that could be a walk that could be you know whatever practice you want to do whether it's yoga etc whether it's breathing exercises but Having that mind-spirit-body connection is a very important one. And sometimes it's just like, can I swear? Please. Yes, okay. Please do. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> it's just, <laughs> fuck the cliche and fuck it. I don't want to get out of bed and I know I can't be bothered to go for a run. And, and, you know, without fail, every time I do push myself to do that because I've wallowed for too long, without fail on that day, it is transformative. I can definitely relate to that. I think for people who can sometimes spend uh, a little bit too much time in their head, like myself, and and that can lead to a bit of anxiety and sometimes some melancholy, it's fundamental. I've also, like you, over the years realized it's actually, it's really not even a choice anymore if I want to maintain a good inner state. And I can really notice if for whatever reason, because I'm traveling or let's say I got ill or something happened that meant I haven't been physically active for a few days, I can immediately spot that my mental and emotional state starts to get a bit more afraid. It just starts to slowly, slowly be like, go a little bit. It gets a bit messy. It gets a little bit you know, I'm a bit edgier. I can feel more thoughts, more intrusive thoughts coming in. My sort of balanced state becomes a little bit off whack. I mean, and if I keep that going for for a while, then we're talking, you know, it's not good. <laughs> it's definitely not yeah. a good state. So serious consequences. Yeah. yeah. Serious consequences. <laughs> so it's like, I don't do this for, I really, I don't, I don't exercise because I want to look good. I don't do it because mm. I'm like trying to lose weight. I mean, it's really like, it's really not for vanity reasons or it's, it's like, do, you know, I don't want to be. Do or die. <laughs> do, I don't want to. <laughs> do or die. A little bit. It is a little bit. Yeah. And I don't know if other people are as influenced. I mean, I think, I think a lot of people are. I wonder how many people are as aware. And maybe some people are fine, you know, they can keep a happy state of being sitting on the sofa. Like, that's great. If you can, I would do it. No problem. But I just, I can't. 
it's not it's not really a choice for me so so i understand you i do another thing for me that was helpful is you know and this was my therapist i've been curious about getting a pet for a while having animal interaction and i found a adorable puppy on the street who has been adopted and is now very much part of this household and this family um, and this community (laughs) (laughs) but really i mean you know having that interspecies connection is actually scientifically proven to improve mental health and feelings of isolation and anxiety. I think it's also empirically proven that nature, access to nature, it's not for everyone all the time, but some exposure to nature on a regular basis is also crucial, you know, for improved mental health. And finally, another thing, and I'm starting to explore it a little bit more, but I'm always very coy and shy and let go of it um, because I don't think I have any uh, talents to explore, but creativity, you know, whether that's musical, you know, whether it's an instrument or singing or whether that's art, you know, through expression of painting or pottery or whatever it is, or dance, etc. But a form of expression that is beyond the rational, you know, uh, but more inspired by what is, what cannot be articulated, you know, is also a great form of spiritual relief, I think. Can I ask, how do you mitigate or withstand the impact of seeing a country that you're in kind of crumbling in the way that it has in the last few years? Has that not had an impact on your mental well-being? It's tragic. It's really tragic to see Lebanon go through what it's going through, particularly when you know the great potential that this country and many of our neighbors have, you know. And that does have a huge momentary, maybe I'm I'm kidding myself here, but it does have a huge momentary and regular impact, uh, you know, where you just feel that universal pain that probably everyone feels in this country and you just realize how the world can just be such an ugly place unnecessarily. And that is a stark reminder, right? And that's a universal experience for a lot of people, you know, whether it's a country or whether it's a situation, whether it's a job, whether it's um, an incident, etc. We've spoken about how our community can be both a help and a hindrance in Lebanon when you're part of the world. Coming together, there's a lot of camaraderie. There's also a little bit of perhaps stifling obligation and expectation and duty. Where does sexual orientation come into that as well. And specifically talking about homosexuality, you are an openly gay man living in in Lebanon in a place where it is still technically a criminal offense with a maximum punishment of a year in prison, but also that's on a legal front. We're talking also culturally, socially. It is quite a religious and conservative country. Whilst also being liberal in some ways, it it still maintains that very strong socio-religious conservatism. How does that impact your living and your sense of self and then ultimately your mental health? I'm just going to caveat. So I don't think it's homosexuality is technically illegal in this country. There's Article 534 uh, in Lebanon, which is a legacy from the French penal code during the French mandate. And that criminalizes unnatural acts of sexual intercourse. But it does not define what unnatural acts of unnatural intercourse. What did I just say? Sorry. Yes, it does not define what that is. Luckily, judicial precedence over the last two decades, I think, has 
not convicted anyone who has been accused under this article because of homosexual acts. There are cases that are brought up on a regular basis, not regular, you know, once or twice a year, etc. There are these kind of big public cases that happen. And luckily, every single time the judges have deemed that homosexuality is not defined as an unnatural act of sex. I think our issue in Lebanon is more institutional, and that's religious, and probably societal from a large section of society that are still conservative. So, but yes, absolutely, I am not existing in a country where my rights, where my my sexual identity or preference is enshrined as a right. It is a vague area that we exist in, and depending on the whims of the multiple mafia institutions that exist in this country, whether it is governmental or whether it is religious. Look, again, for me, I have struggled with this issue since I was very young. So context, geographical context for me never really matters so much because I think having grown up already in a Middle Eastern country, uh, family, as you said, with that weird contradiction, but it's re- relatively liberal in some ways, but also conservative in many others, I had self-centered since I was young. Right. It's it's an absolute norm, I think, for me to navigate the landmines of social or political restrictions on identity in a very comfortable way. Does it enrage me when minorities are used as pawns uh, for political benefit or distraction? Absolutely. I used to be active in kind of supporting the LGBTQ plus movement in Lebanon. Less so now, other than I find that actually my activism is by being, by exposing myself as a homosexual, or at least by as being someone who is not uh, heteronormative. So for me, this is probably one of the most powerful forms of activism. And actually, Helen, the gay rights movement of the LGBTQ plus NGO of Lebanon, you know, this was one of their first forms of activism. It was exposure. It was basically social and communal exposure, being part of the community and society you live in, rather than isolating and creating yourself into a, you know, a village or creating this immense safe space. You actually remain in the society, and yes, you do have pockets of safe spaces to go to, to you know, have a community, to be able to share experiences, but that actually being part of your community and exposing yourself as the human that you are and the little difference that you have from others normalizes this for others. And for me, I've done this very actively with friends, with family. Um, I don't even bring it up as a topic. I actually just talk about my partner being male, you know, and I just throw it out there and I see the little shock in people's eyes and then I continue as if nothing strange was said. And luckily enough, you know, there are enough allies in this country that, you know, in certain stratas of society that are... You can work on easily on transforming them. You know, you you can very much be yourself very comfortably, but that is not the case for all people. I think it's really interesting what you said and important because the reason why I was asking how does it impact your mental health is because of feelings of lack of acceptance and belonging and shame that generally come around when you are unable to be openly yourself. And it sounds like part of the reason, perhaps that the generally anti 
queer stance in Lebanon, be it on an institutional level or a legal level, is you kind of mitigated against that by being very much present in yourself and open about that. And I wonder if that has, you know, perhaps that is how you've withstood the feelings of any shame or lack of acceptance that historically queer people who aren't uh, in a safe environment feel. But you've also raised the point that you are, that is you, and that is your, perhaps also a bit of a product of your, a bit of privilege or luck that you are predominantly surrounded by people who have been very welcoming and accepting of you, including within your own family, Mm. which I think is great, like wonderful to hear. I think it's also really inspiring, I hope, for others who may be in similar situations. And that that's also a possibility. Yes, that we we're aware and we should continue to be aware of the victimization and abuse that queer people uh, experience mm. in countries like Lebanon and the wider Middle East. But I, I also think it's important to hear stories of cases in which people like yourself are living comfortably and lovingly. Yeah. If that makes sense. Do you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think what you said, I can't talk universally about this topic or the universal experience of people who are non-heteronormative in Lebanon. I am definitely not a a point of reference to talk about the universal experience here, primarily because, as you said, I had the luck of growing up in the UK in Manchester during my formative years and having access to a thriving gay community in in Manchester, in Canal Street, which normalized a lot of that for me. I also had, you know, um, queer friends in kind of late GCSEs and A-levels in school. So, you know, a lot of it was normalized for me because I was already living in a part of the world where the public narrative was shifting significantly and laws we're still shifting significantly because actually it's still there are still many disparities in the laws in the UK at the time as to uh, afforded to heterosexuals and not homosexuals. Obviously, homosexuality was not criminalized at the time, but there were still disparities. It was still, you know, this kind of dynamic issue that was being dealt with legally. So for me, I think I have my struggles with myself and that sense of shame and the impact on my mental health when I was much younger. So the reason I sound so bullish uh, now about this topic when you refer to my existence in Lebanon is because I don't have any issues with myself being non-heteronormative in Lebanon because I've dealt with that before coming to Lebanon. Saying that, it was very difficult to deal with that even though I was growing up in the UK. Um, it gave me immense, I mean, I, I took immense courage and strength being in the UK to deal with that between me and myself and having friends that were already supportive at the time um, from a very young age, uh, you know, from late teens. But nonetheless, the sense of shame, the sense of fear of being ostracized by your family and your immediate family, let alone your society and your community. I couldn't care less about society and community when I was 16 or 17. I cared about my immediate family, my brothers, my parents. So struggling with that shame and that fear of being left alone uh, was, yeah, probably had a huge impact on my mental health, probably up until today and probably in ways that I have yet to understand. You know, and, and actually only very recently, I realized that 
a lot of the so that I have severe social anxiety. I thought I was a social butterfly, and I only recently, and I thought I thrive socially and appears to most people that I do. And only recently, actually, in the last month, with a lot of self-reflection, I realized that I have severe social anxiety and I probably tend to indulge a little bit too much in drinks, for example, when I'm being social. Um, and finally made a connection between my need to reach for a drink when I'm being social or my need to cocoon and go quiet if I'm not reaching for a drink or if I'm not in the right context or if I'm in a meeting and I'm asked to speak and I have a complete and total mental collapse comes from you know, formative years where I was being bullied as a child. I genuinely finally made that connection. I'm just saying, so you're interesting. You're asking very interesting questions and they're not things that I've dealt with just yet. And they're actually only things that I'm realizing I probably need to deal with soon if I want to give myself a bit of relief from certain waves of anxiety that I get in multiple situations. And these are connected to uh, bullying and homosexuality, my homosexuality uh, kind of being intertwined in my formative years. And it's funny that only after 20 odd years of feeling very bullish about this topic, of if you don't accept me, I don't have time for you. Um, and that is completely how I still feel about this, you know, um, but then I'm actually realizing, okay, great, you know, um, you're a bloody, you know, military tank moving forward. When anyone asks you anything about your sexuality, you can care less what their thoughts were. But actually, there's a legacy of a lot of stuff that you were not able to deal with in the past. So yeah, Henry, thank you for asking that question. No, that makes makes a lot of sense. So I want to ask you, how would you describe your mental health today and where you're at? And your journey, you mentioned it's it's been a few years in the making and it's gone through various processes. Where do you feel that you are today? My mental health today is in a phase that's probably very exploratory, I'd say. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm feeling uh, particularly strong. This is one point I actually forgot to mention earlier is something that people don't tell you when you decide or need to work on your emotional and mental well-being is that the journey is not you know this upward kind of crescendo and you finally get there and the divine lights of the skies shine on you and you've reached and you'll always be happy you know it's it's really this and please tell me if you know the exactly <laughs> that one. Tell me if you know what, like the technical term for a graph, you know, the line on the graph that starts to go up on the axis, but dips and yeah. troughs and dips and troughs and dips and it's troughs. like a heart monitor. So, you know, you often find that what you have to accept is that sometimes there are going to be dips that are prolonged and exhausting. And what you need to also assess is, are the dips getting shallower than the ones before or are you dipping further down and then that's how you kind of understand this for me helped me really understand am i improving or not because often we are our harshest critics and cycles of mental disease can be really disheartening if you don't understand that it is only a normal human condition that we never reach the ultimate place, but that it is 
you know, of a journey and that journey involves ups and downs. Mm. This for me really, really helped me because I used to start kind of pounding myself, you know, and just saying, God damn it, you know, you've gone and done this again and now you feel completely useless and you are unable to ever move forward. And then I think it was my therapist that told me this, you know, and I just thought actually, yeah, don't be so harsh on yourself. You fucked up again. When was the last time you fucked up? Actually, you used to fuck up every day and now it's like, you know, once every couple of weeks. That's an improvement. doesn't matter if you fucked up once, you know, that your journey to getting better is over, you know, just keep going at it. I would really encourage anyone that is having severe reactions to the reality, mentally and emotionally, to seek therapy and explore until you get to the right therapist. Because these very disabling phases that we can reach because of mental and emotional well-being, the kind of crescendos of them, which are almost total disability and handicap, right? can actually, potentially, can be resolved very quickly and very efficiently. And this is what a lot of people, I think, that find themselves in such difficult, handicapped situations, think, oh, I'm going to sit around and just dig about my past and my childhood, etc. That is one form of therapy, but therapy can also be a very practical tool to, you know, from my experience, within two weeks, go from being completely malfunctional, you know, to being feeling alive and hopeful again. Thank you for explaining so beautifully and positively the impact and benefits of therapy, but also the therapeutic process. And it isn't this like linear trajectory. And from my, I, I completely resonated when you, when you spoke about uh, having previously felt sometimes like, why did you mess up again? Or like being hard on yourself for feeling bad. And I remember at a certain point in when I was going through depression and then therapy and thinking, gosh, I mean, it's not bad enough that you're, de you're depressed or going through these episodes. Now you're like feeling bad about feeling bad. Like <laughs> you're just going to like beat yourself up even like, wow, you really, you really love pain here. Like, yeah, I think it's very valid to say that we need to be celebrating the, the improvements, however incrementally they come. And that it is always a work in progress. And um, I wish you a very fruitful and peaceful and loving digging as you go onwards in the journey to wherever it takes you. Thank you for listening to this episode. Check out the show notes for more details about my wonderful guests, including where you can find them on social media. If you enjoyed listening to this, please do spread the good word, share with friends, family, cousins, and colleagues, and please, please, please like and leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to this podcast. Your support is crucial for the show's success, and a couple of clicks from you will mean the world to me. Go to my website, leilamagrabi.com, and follow me on Instagram and Twitter for more news on future episodes. <laughs>